Hello, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Data Rebels on Tap. I am your host, Randy Pitcher, and today I am joined by Kent Graziano of Snowflake. Kent, also known as the Data Warrior, is the Chief Technical Evangelist for Snowflake and an internationally recognized industry expert in cloud and agile data warehousing. He is also a best-selling author, award-winning speaker, Oracle ACE Director alumni, Knight of the Oak Table Network, and Certified Data Vault Master. Today, we're going to learn more about Kent's work and discuss his thoughts on data modeling and the future of analytics engineering. But before that, let's have a drink. And this being a morning episode, um, we're going to drink some uh, morning drinks. Kent, welcome to the podcast. What are you drinking today? Oh, thanks for having me, Randy. Uh, this morning, I've got emergency. Really? Okay. Um, you mentioned uh, earlier that you you don't really drink uh, caffeine. Uh, you want to tell us more about that? Well, yeah, I actually I don't I don't drink coffee. I do occasionally oh. drink tea, and I do drink, tea, drink tea, but I never really got into the the coffee thing. Um, emergency is something I have developed a habit of having basically every morning. It started a bunch of years ago when I was working for Hewlett Packard and having to spend all day in JAD sessions out in uh, the headquarters in California. And one of the guys that was in the meetings with me all the time was constantly filling up his water bottle, but it was colored. And it was like, what do you got in there, man? It's like, well, I've yeah. got emergency. It's like, well, why is that? I said, well, with all the travel that we're doing and being in close contact with all these people, I want to make sure my immune system is up there. And that stuck with me. And then when I came to work for Snowflake, I started doing just massive amount of travel here in the last couple of years. So yeah. I got in the habit, you know, four or five years ago, at least, of having emergency every morning, um, just as, as part of my my daily routine in order to make sure my immune system was in, in top form, which, as it turns out, given the current state of things, uh, was yeah. a really good call. Yeah, I was wondering when you mentioned it, if it had to do with uh, the current quarantine uh, situation, but it sounds like this is an old habit. Yeah, yeah. It's one I developed a long time ago. And certainly, like I said, with all the, the travel that I've done, and even prior to Snowflake, I traveled a fair amount speaking at a lot of Oracle user group conferences, which is how I got the, the Oracle Ace Director status. Okay. And traveling internationally as well as nationally. And so just having that with me, always having that one, you know, I'm staying in a hotel, um, yeah. just became became a habit just to do whatever I could to to make sure that I was staying as healthy as possible while I was on the road. And do you find that it uh, has an impact that it um, is helping you stay yeah. healthy? I mean, yeah, I've, uh, I I tend not to get sick very often. Um, you know that that in a flu vaccine every year. Okay, and make sure that I uh, stay healthy. You know, every once in a while I get something. Usually it's the allergies here in Texas that take me down. Oh rather yeah, than, rather than something else. Man, that's some pollen, man. You'll be swiping it off your car. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, so today I am drinking uh, also not coffee. I decided to follow the trend, and I'm having tea. Um, typically not a tea person, but this is some uh, special tea that a neighbor gave me before they uh, moved. So for the last year, we've been living next to a, a, a Scottish couple. Um, here in Oklahoma City, and they went back to Scotland. And on their way out, they gave us all their tea, so they didn't have to take it with them, and they had a lot. Um, and this is a Twinnings breakfast blend, and I like it a lot. Um, I put a cool. little uh, local local honey in here, and it's got a nice flavor. Um, so I always think of them when I have this tea. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, hey, Kent, I, I wanted to dive in a little bit, and you've got such a rich background. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do at Snowflake? <laughs> 
Sure. So um, I've been working in the data space for the majority of my career. I started off actually as a as a programmer in BASIC, and then learning Fortran, and then moved into DBase um, oh. back in back in the eighties. Right. I got into DBase two and DBase three, and eventually ended up on a, a project using an early version of Oracle uh, in the very late eighties, a version five of Oracle. Uh, just really took to the database world and the data management world. Then in about the mid-90s, I got introduced to uh, the concepts of data warehousing, uh, a la Bill Inman, and okay. got just taken in by that. And it's like, well, th this is great. Um, moved into some consulting, uh, got to actually write my, my first book, was co-authored with Bill Inman. So I got to learn his methodology and his approach directly from him. And then his, the uh, technical editor on that book was Claudia Imhoff. So I was just you know blessed with the beginning of my career in data warehousing was mentored by two industry luminaries that basically invented the space. Yeah. And that was just you know, a phenomenal experience. And I'm actually still in contact with both of them on a fairly regular basis even today. Uh, so I got got involved in data warehousing and business intelligence, and it just looked to me like you know this is something that people are always going to need. It's yeah. it's the right way to help uh, business solve their problems by taking advantage of all of the data that they have. Where I figured eventually, you know, the transaction processing systems, the OTP systems, would be more off the shelf and more canned. And I'll say Salesforce.com is is like the epitome of that now, right? It's sure, yeah. You, know, you just you you plug in and you. You, you do what you got to do. But data warehousing and analytics and now with data science and machine learning has continued to grow and expand over the years. And so it's just allowed me to continue to grow my career and, and pursue my, my passion for, for data and understanding data and helping yeah. businesses understand the data they have. So it's it's Snowflake. What that turned into uh, is what's now I'm the chief technical evangelist at Snowflake. And really, I help people understand what the, the possibilities now are, what they could do with their data with the cloud and specifically with the Snowflake technologies, uh, what, what our founders invented. Just a, an awesome platform. So I'm out there, as it were, spreading the good word about, yeah. about Snowflake and what it's done for people and what it's done for the, the organizations that we work with. Um, and help them envision a new future with using a cloud data platform to really take yeah. advantage of all that data that they've got. Uh, that's fantastic. Um, we, we certainly see your content all around and definitely see uh, you traveling everywhere uh, on social media. Um, you've been with Snowflake since kind of the early days. What first attracted you to the company? Yeah, so I've been with them since uh, fall of 2015 which I didn't realize it at the time was really only a couple of months after the first version of Snowflake went GA. Mm -hmm. uh, I was able to attend a seminar of all things up in Denver. It was a big data meetup sponsored by the Rocky Mountain Oracle user group. Um, and the president of the group had, had invited me to attend, uh, happened to be free that night. And I went and you know got introduced to um, uh, two of the, the early folks in Snowflake who were doing the presentation and it just, the technology just, just blew me away. I was yeah. in the midst of a, uh, a agile project 
building out a virtual ODS for a small customer in the Midwest. And we had been struggling with first, you know, getting access to a database for me to build what we were designing. It took six weeks for me to get a login. Um, and, And at the beginning of the project, the VP had asked me, you know, how big a server do I need to buy for this data warehouse thing that we're going to build? And well, I, I, I don't know that I can tell you. I mean, this is the first day, right? It's like, how, how much data do you have? Uh, I don't know, but it's a lot of data. And how many, how many users are going to be accessing it? What kind of reports? You know, well, I'm not really sure, but I'm sure it's going to be most of our analysts. Yeah. Uh, so there was no real information in order to try to size a server. And that's, you know, kind of the epitome of the on-prem world is we have to buy a server. In order to buy a server and size it appropriately and not spend too much and not spend too little, we've got yeah. to do all this capacity planning. So all those questions I was asking that hadn't been answered really had to get answered before we could really dig in and start building the system for him. Yeah. Then I saw this presentation, I go to this demo for Snowflake, and they say, oh, well, it's completely elastic. Okay, well, what do you mean by elastic? You add data, and we grab space for you. Yeah. You add more data, we grab more space. You delete data, we release the space, and you only pay for the space you're using. I was like, seriously? <laughs> you know, I, I, so I could start out with 10 gig of data. Yeah. And I could grow to a terabyte or 100 yeah. terabytes. And I don't have to configure anything. Yeah, that's what we mean by elastic. And you don't, so you don't have to pay for 10 terabytes when you only need 100 gigabytes. And you still have the ability to grow to that level without having to do the forecasting and figure yeah. out where it's going to go. You know, I talk to people a lot about you know, the, the, the good news, bad news of data democratization and yeah. being incredibly successful with your BI project. In the on-prem world, if we were incredibly successful, we often found out that we had a declining performance curve. Yeah. And you start off with 100 users, and everybody's happy, and they're loving the system, and they tell their friends, they tell their friends in another department, and then they want to get on. And next thing you know, you've got 1,000 users, and you went from 100 really happy users to 1,000 not-so-happy users because yeah. all the queries are now running slow because of the contention. Yeah. And so when I saw the, the architecture on top of this, so you have the elastic storage, but then you have this, the independent compute clusters that, hey, we can spin up a single node over here to do some streaming. We can make this massive compute cluster over here for the data scientists that are going to run machine learning against it. We can have a separate cluster for the uh, dashboards and the Tableau users and the Power BI users. And we can yeah. divide it up any way we want to minimize contention because there's just now, now there's no contention. And it's like, wow, then I can get a bunch of new users and I can add more compute. And I don't have to pay for it until I'm actually using it. And only when we turn it on, which funny thing we found out with Snowflake is hardly anybody actually runs compute 24 7, 365. Oh, yeah. Right, and so this model of the cloud of pay-as-you-go, in the case of Snowflake, paying per second per node, is incredibly cost-effective in comparison to having to spend millions of dollars on a big appliance in a data center and hope that it's big enough to handle Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Right, yeah. 
And so we're always sizing for that. So when I saw all of that, I was like, okay, I, I'm really interested. So I started following Snowflake on social media myself okay. and saw a tweet saying, hey, we're hiring and went and looked at the job description, uh, called the uh, sales engineer who had done the presentation, talked to him about the company. He walked yeah. me through the history of the company and the founders and how it all happened. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm going to apply for this. And it, you know, this turned into what I, what I do today is they, they needed somebody who was, I'll say, somewhat savvy in the social media space, had experience mm -hmm. blogging because they needed somebody to do some technical blogs and had experience speaking at industry events. And yeah. well, that's kind of what I did in my spare time when I wasn't consulting. So yeah. I was like, Hey, this is, this is a, this is a great opportunity. Um, I was about uh, employee 100 wow. of all things. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, it, it was early days. And now when I look at when, you know, we're hiring in some cases more than a hundred people a month at this point, uh, <laughs> it's, it's really crazy. When I look back at it, it's like, wow, this is, we, we'd have a company all hands and literally yeah. everybody was in the room. Yeah. You know, everybody was in the room. You could, you could do that. You could bring everybody in and have an all hands meeting. And I had never experienced anything like that before. And it was just, especially going from my prior corporate employer had been Hewlett Packard. Yeah. Which is of course massive. And then I kind yeah. of went back into independent consulting, doing these these agile gigs, and to go into now a small company that felt very agile, right? Mm -hmm. um, very bleeding edge, doing just incredible things with incredible technologies. Like, wow, this is this is a great opportunity. And now looking back and seeing, you know, the company we've got over seventeen hundred employees now. Um, we're all over the world. Where when I joined, I think we we had the office in San Mateo. Mm -hmm. which is where 90% of the people were. And there were a couple of sales engineers and account executives in like New York, Chicago, Dallas, and the Bay Area. I think that was yeah. pretty much it. And then one guy, actually, um, one of our VPs, you know, VP now, started in Denver like two weeks before I joined the company. And, oh, okay. And, and the and sales engineer who was in, in that uh, particular uh, meetup that I went to, it was actually his first week on the job. And he was <laughs> sitting there watching the presentation from his two senior colleagues to start to, to learn the ropes as it were. Yeah. Wow. That, that is really exciting. And it's a long time to have been working with uh, such a dynamic platform, right? Like I, I'm assuming things have changed dramatically from those early days to what the product is today. Are there a few things that stand out to you as like major changes that have happened since those first days? Oh yeah, I mean one one of the things that they added shortly after I joined was the multi-cluster warehouse. Yeah, and the whole system is called multi-cluster shared data architecture. But then we added a feature called multi-cluster warehouse that allows you to do automatic horizontal scaling. Yeah. So you you start with a, a single cluster of however many nodes and set it up for the multi-cluster warehouse, then if it starts getting a concurrency contention because too many users coming in, so that example I gave before, you got 100 users and it's been running along fine, and now all of a sudden it's 200 and then 300 and then 400, and the queries start getting queued, multi-cluster warehouse will automatically spin up a parallel cluster and load balance between those two clusters. And it can go all the way out to 10 clusters. And that was just like, 
incredible because that was always the challenge we were trying to do when I worked in the Oracle space in particular is, you know, how do we get more CPUs? How do we distribute this? And I know in yeah. the Teradata world and the other MPP systems, people were always challenged with that is, do we have enough nodes? And, yeah. and how do we spread that load out easily so that everybody gets to do what they want? And basically, it's, it's, it's a lot of work to do. And in Snowflake, it's you set up the feature and then you don't do anything. The system uses you know, statistics and metadata and a little bit of machine learning to go, hey, We've got a bunch of queries over here starting to queue up. Okay. Yeah. Turn on this parallel, turn on this node, configure it. And it's in this nearly instant, which is the crazy part on top of it. This what we can do in the cloud just blows my mind. Yeah. That it's nearly instantaneous. Um, little queuing happens. New cluster automatically provisioned. Don't have to have a pager go off. Don't have to call a DBA or a system administrator to go allocate more resources. It just does it automatically. And then yeah. when the load subsides, it automatically turns itself off. So again, that pay-as-you-go thing, you're not paying for it. So you can configure this, and it's not like you're going to pay for 10, 10 parallel nodes yeah. the entire time that the system's on. You just pay for it when it spins up, and you stop paying for it when it spins down, and it's all automatic. So that, that was one really, really cool feature. That, that, that blew me away. I mean, that like solves so many problems for so many people. I and think yep, when I... When I first started using Snowflake, so my background getting started was in the Hadoop world um, and node count and utilization was a constant concern uh, for me, uh, particularly because in a production environment, everything's running on the same cluster. If so, if you have one, um, I don't know, new data engineer uh, running a query that they shouldn't, that's just taking too many resources, everything shuts down. Like you'll break, you'll bring the whole cluster down. Production stuff is dead. Um, so it wasn't just like, how do we size the production environment, but now we need to size a test environment where people can play around in, and we need to size a dev environment for when we do update the software. So when I came to, uh, use Snowflake for the first time, probably early 2018, uh, late 2018, sorry. Um, one of the first requirements was how do we scale up to, uh, like a load that's going to increase in some variable ways during business hours. Uh, so we turned on multi-cluster warehousing and it was like, man, this, this would have been months of work in, in a in a previous life, and now I get to focus on the fun stuff. So, um, I've also been a really big fan of that feature. Yeah, no, that so that that was a big one, and then the, the next really big one is the the data sharing mm. that we we released a couple of years ago. That's now turned into a data marketplace and private data exchanges. That the idea of being able to create what I refer to as a curated data mart yeah, and put it into a container that we call a share and basically just grant read access to that, to any other Snowflake account holder. And it's like, okay. Cause in the data warehouse world, the entire time I've been in it here since the mid nineties, people have always desired to augment their internal data sets with external data sets. Yeah. But it's such a pain in the neck, right? You first you got to figure out, you got to find the data, you got to find yeah. somebody, and then you got to convince them to extract that data from their system, put it in some sort of consumable form, which generally ended up being CSVs, mm -hmm. uh, and they got to put it on a, if it's any kind of sensitive data. You're looking for a secure FTP site, so they have to export it, format it, put it on a secure FTP site. You have to then get it yourself, download it into your system, 
And then since it's not in a database format, you've got to now have a data pipeline to mm. ETL that into your data warehouse and probably reformat it. It's going to come into probably a stage tables because it's a bunch of CSVs. Um, yeah. And if you need it to be a dimensional model, then you've got to revise it and change it. And then you can start joining it to your data. Okay, and that's just the first share. Yeah. And if it's in any kind of dynamic data, which is what we really want, is data that's being updated on a regular basis, mm-hmm. you, then you got to go through that again. And so people were doing, you know, like maybe might do it annually, might do it semi-annually. At best, you did it monthly because it was just so much work and all this data engineering. And of course, if they the provider changes the format, it messes you up, right? Because then your your inbound stuff doesn't work. So with Snowflake, with the data sharing now, people just they put a data model out there, they put the data in it. And as soon as the provider updates that data, the next query you run against that share sees the data. Yeah. So now we, now we can look at almost near real-time refreshes of shared data across any number of consumers. Um, I mean, that's, that's like uh, the, the architecture of Snowflake allows that with that separation to keep compute from storage. And so that architecture, the shared the shared data multi-cluster architecture was a game changer. But this now application of it with data sharing and data mm-hmm. exchanges and data marketplaces is like a game another major game changer for basically every industry that deals yeah. with data, which is pretty much every industry today, right? It's just allowing us to do just so much more so much more quickly and seamlessly and um, sometimes we say you know removing the friction of getting that external data into your environment and then on top of that so people are able to to monetize the data in many cases yeah but getting access to that external data then some organizations are able to take that data and then augment it with their own data and create yet another unique valuable data set that they in turn can share to their constituents and business partners and consumers. And it's just the, uh, the entire network effect of what we can now do with data in a very easy fashion. Um, yeah. And that, that was just, it, it was very exciting at the time uh, when it first came out. And now with the uh, COVID-19, we're seeing the fruits of that really, because we now have one of our partners in, uh, in Europe, Star Schema created a curated set of COVID-19 data that they've gone to John Hopkins and the World Health Organization and a whole bunch of other organizations and mined the the data that they've made available. And they've gone and done the hard work of curating that data and setting up the data pipeline to get daily refreshes. And it's all going into a Snowflake database that's, that's now available actually for free so they're not charging anybody for access to this data. So anybody who's got a Snowflake account can now go in and get refreshes of that data and query that data and do whatever they need to do for their organization. So we've got healthcare organizations, we've got retail organizations, logistics organizations, all yeah. looking at this data to try to say, how can we make this situation better? You know, how can we help with the supply chain and make sure that you know grocery stores are getting what they need when they need it based on you know what's happening in the trends in in the COVID-19 space and you got the healthcare organizations using it to do their epidemiological research and it's just it, it's incredible to see that happening and it's certainly nothing that um, 
I'll say the founders envisioned yeah. that it would be used for initially, but it turns out, yeah, sharing data in the healthcare space is incredibly powerful. And the data sharing feature of Snowflake is really making that um, so much easier for organizations to do globally that it's just, it's amazing to see. Yeah, that, that data sharing feature, especially the the exchange, um, it feels to me, you know, I've looked back at um, tech moments, right, where you had just an enormous amount of opportunity when a, the, the combination of events made things right for an explosion of creativity and development. I think of kind of the 70s, I think of microcontrollers and how some of our biggest companies come from that time. I think of uh, the early iOS days when the app store first came online and it was just a mad rush to do things people never really thought about doing before for you know your mobile handheld computers and it changed the world. And I think about this exchange in the same way for its potential to um, both open up new opportunities to people who are just getting started. You don't have to be a, a huge company to really make a difference in this exchange, but also in uh, the new the new possible solutions that uh, can be born of this exchange. So I'm really excited for that. I, I'm excited to see where that goes. Yeah, no, I, I think we're, we're seeing it right now, right? With, with this use in the healthcare space. Uh, yeah. I worked in healthcare data warehousing for quite a while prior to coming to Snowflake with uh, some uh, major healthcare organizations and cancer research and really could see that being able to share data within the healthcare space was something we all needed to get to. And as soon as Snowflake launched the data sharing thing, I was talking to our, our healthcare folks and saying, you know, there's just, you know, basic reference data that every healthcare organization, every hospital, every clinic, every pharmacy in the world needs access to there's a huge opportunity there for one of these companies to take that reference data that they're, they're getting from um, the federal organizations and upload it in Snowflake and make it available to everybody to, to make it easier for everybody to be looking at the same version of this data. Yeah. I, working in mostly oil and gas uh, through a lot of my career, um, I've seen this common theme of units um, like just metric units, feet versus meters versus inches versus really proprietary stuff. And when I saw the data exchange, I thought this is the perfect opportunity to standardize around the one single source of truth for conversions. Because when I've worked on joint ventures across different companies, especially if you're you're working with European oil companies in the mix, it is non-trivial yeah. to ensure that your conversions are right. And some of those um, efficiency equations that'll uh, help predict outcomes that we're actually doing this for, small conversion differences will have a huge difference in uh, your outcome. So it, it's, like you said, it spans so many industries, the the impact this could have. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, so talking a little bit more about your day-to-day -day with Snowflake, um, I mentioned earlier that you've been traveling a lot. Uh, and I was curious, what are some of the favorite, your favorite places that you visited in maybe the last year? Yeah, so in the last year, I've been literally around the world. I think uh, the report from Google said I effectively circumnavigated the globe 12 times, which wow. blew wow. me away. And that's you know putting all the miles together in Ubers and Lyfts and buses and trains and airplanes. Um, that was quite a bit. But I actually uh, last year hit hit quite a few, quite a few countries. Um, it was, it was too many for me to remember almost, but I got to have my, uh, my first trip to, uh, Portugal, 
mm-hmm. uh, about this time last year for a, a partner conference and go to Lisbon. And that was just, just a beautiful place. The, yeah. the food, I'm, I'm a big foodie and the food there, the seafood was phenomenal. We had uh, an amazing dinner for very, very little money. Uh, turns out it's very affordable there. Uh, just a beautiful place right on the, right on the uh, Mediterranean Sea and the Atlantic Ocean there, right where they meet. Uh, old town, you know, historic buildings and churches, just really, really great. And the people were, were, were very friendly. And food yeah. was phenomenal. Um, I also got last year uh, for the first time, I actually got to go to Australia. I got to go to Australia twice. So okay. I got to spend time in, uh, in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane. Um, and then even got to go over to New Zealand uh, and spend some time in, in Auckland. And those trips wow. were, were great. The, uh, my first trip over, because I went for a couple of weeks, I got to spend uh, a weekend in Sydney. So I even got to go to a concert in the Sydney Opera House. Um, oh, really? On, on a Saturday night. Yeah, it, that was phenomenal. It was, it was dirt cheap, too. I was really surprised how inexpensive it was. But, you know, walked around all over the area there, went to the, the zoo in Sydney and did a harbor cruise and all the usual sort of tourist things. I also got to catch up with a couple of old friends while I was there. Yeah. A friend of mine from Colorado who had moved to Australia uh, probably 20 years ago. I, I hadn't seen him in 20 years. He came out and met me and, you know, went, went for a beer and uh, walked around the city center with me a little bit, showed me some of the sights. And then another friend in uh, Melbourne who actually works yeah. for one of our Snowflake customers, um, who is another Oracle guru that I had known in the Oracle user group community. And I hadn't seen him in 20 years either and got to go out and spend a nice evening with him and ha- have a dinner. And again, show me, show me the sights. Uh, yeah. Over in Auckland, I got to do a, a two-hour um, sale on an America's Cup boat. Really? Which one? Yes. Uh, it was it was a German one. It was one of the ones that Germans had used for training. Um, and so there's a outfit there that has two of these that they bought from the Germans. And they yeah. do uh, sales around the, the harbor there in, in Auckland. And you get to help crew the, the boat and hoist, wow. hoist the main sail and things like that. And it was, that was awesome because I'd been following the America's Cup stuff ever since uh, uh, Oracle had, had competed. I got to see the final race. It happened to be yeah. in San Francisco when the final race happened and, you know, kind of got uh, interested in, in that particular sport. And so the fact that I was able to actually get on the boat, I'd, I'd much rather be an active participant than watching. Um, and so yeah. that was, that was a great experience to, to be able to do that. So Man, I guess that kind of, yeah. Yeah. That's so a fast pace. I, I had a good year with all of that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Portugal, um, I, I work remotely. I've often uh, considered that, you know, I could move anywhere. Where should I move? And uh, Portugal is consistently rated very highly for yes, what they call is. digital, apps, right? For a place you can go that's uh, pretty safe, really affordable, great internet. Um, you can go out there and make a, a really nice life for yourself. Yeah. And actually one of the, I saw an article recently of, you know, top 10 places in the world to retire to. And I think Portugal yeah. was like number two or three on the list. And now, do you speak any Portuguese? Nope. <laughs> not a lick. It's pretty easy to <laughs> not a lick. Yeah, yeah, no, it, pretty much everybody speaks uh, speaks English. Um, I learned to speak a little of Italian about 20 years ago when I my right. wife and I went to Italy to 
for me to speak at a, at a conference there. And, uh, you know, I hear a lot of Spanish, um, yeah. over the, over the years, especially living here in Texas. And so, yeah, no enough to you could pick up a couple of words here and there, but Portuguese is definitely different. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely different. Oh man. Well, Hey, uh, I am, I'm also curious just about the industry you're in and how you stay up to date, uh, because you're out speaking a lot. You must be really busy. How do you find time to, um, keep up to date with new developments? Yeah, that is, that has definitely, uh, is a challenge, but it's, it's pretty much through my webinars and, and blog posts. Uh, my primary source is, uh, Twitter and LinkedIn. Okay. Wow. And, and, and people in my network, um, that I follow uh, a lot of times there's, uh, there's good links to articles, webinars, things like that. Um, you know, I try to follow some of the industry leaders still like, like Claudia Imhoff okay. uh, and Wayne Eckerson and a couple of others and just do it, do it when I can, when I fit it in uh, a lot of reading in airport lounges. Okay. <laughs> Waiting to board, you know, ever since, you know, nine yeah. 11 where we have to be the airport kind of, kind of early and get through security and all of that, you know, the, the, uh, Things that I'm doing are are fairly important, so I tend to not want to risk you know missing a flight because of a a line at uh, security. So I often end up up there early and do a lot of my reading while I'm uh, waiting for my flights. Oh, that's and, a good tip. And, and keep uh, and keep up on things that way. So, kind of speaking of tips, do you have any secret weapons that you use in your day to day? Any any kind of travel tips or technology tools, techniques that you like to use in your job? Well, travel tips for sure is clear. Get clear, oh, clear. T- clear TSA pre and global entry. Okay. <laughs> How to? I mean, it's it's the only way to go to get the shortest lines. Like when when I especially when I fly internationally, when I come back here to Houston with global entry, it's. Yeah. Five minutes, right? Go to a kiosk, put in my passport, takes my fingerprints, spits something out. You go to the the agent, and and you're done. Um, I also never check bags. Really, never. Even on a never. Even on you- my two week trip, I did a two week trip last year to uh, Finland and and Sweden in the mm-hmm. in January. So I had to take my winter clothes. And then the then two two week trips to Australia, and I have my snowflake backpack and my rollerboard, and that's it. You're and just a really so efficient backpacker. I am. Uh, learned learned that years ago. Uh, I I lived in Japan over 30 years ago, and after wow. leaving Japan, spent six weeks traveling throughout Southeast Asia with one bag. And yeah. um, now, granted, it was tropical, so it was a lot easier at that time of year to travel with less. But I got very good at um, packing a lot into a small case. I've had a couple of times where uh, they told me my uh, wheel my wheelboard was too heavy. Yeah, <laughs> I'd, I'd be too too efficient at it. But I have <laughs> managed to do that um, just to avoid uh, to save time when I when I land in particular, so that I can just breeze through passport control. I don't have to wait at a uh, wait to pick up luggage before I go through customs. All of that just eliminated that. You know, and coming back to the U.S., like I said, global entry is is, is a lifesaver to be able to do those sorts of things, and then clear. Um, 
is a service you have to pay for, and most of the major airports have it. And yeah. even with TSA Pre, Clear gets you to the head of the line. Really? And, yeah. So some airports I've seen, like Atlanta, uh, where the TSA Pre line might be 30, 40 minutes. And even Denver, last time I was there, I happened to hit it at uh, midwinter break here uh, a couple of months ago when we had a snowflake event up there. And the line on TSA Pre was incredibly long but the clear line was like three people in yeah and it takes you right up to the the kiosk once you've cleared that you you go right to the kiosk and then you're in line to to go through the scanning i'll have to check that out this is my first year getting pre-check after um uh being kind of stubborn about it for a while and it's incredible uh, oh, yeah. i've not had being any long lines. There was one time when the pre-check line was longer than the general line. And um, I forget where I was at, maybe not Houston. It was a smaller, maybe San Antonio. Um, yeah. And I was still really happy to be in the, the pre-check line. Cause you don't have to take your shoes off or anything. Uh, right. So well, check- and, and with what we do, we're always traveling with electronics. So to not yeah. have to pull your laptop out of the backpack and put it in a separate bin and all of that, and then repack it when you get on the other side, that saves time in and of itself. Oh, yeah. You know, the shorter line plus it's just it's just a lot easier to get through. Like you said, not having to take off your your shoes and not have to pull out your electronics. Um, that just is it, it's 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 quite the time saver on the on the travel side for sure. Perfect. Well, hey, I think now is a good time to check in on our drinks. How's that emergency? Yeah, almost gone. Almost done. Now, yeah. do you do you rotate through different flavors? I assume they have flavors. Yeah, they do. Uh, the the our favorite, our family's favorite is the is the super orange. Uh, okay. But they, they do have a tangerine and a tropical and uh, a raspberry and even a pink lemonade one. Uh, mm. But we t- we tend to like the uh, the orange one the best. Uh, the tropical one I'm uh, I tried out this last week because. It was the only one available in the grocery store. All the others oh, were yeah. sold out, um, and it, it's not too bad. They've got a they even got a pineapple coconut one, which I have not tried. That sounds good. <laughs> I'll have to give those a try. Um, definitely, I think we're all thinking about our immune systems now, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll pick some of that up and try it. My uh, tea is entirely gone. There's a little honey down there. I can still see, yeah. um, and it was fan. Fantastic. Uh, I, I think I will stick to coffee uh, most of the time. <laughs> no. uh, I'll, I'll get a refill after this. But it was a great tea, and it's nice to you know remember some uh, some nice neighbors I had. Yeah, that's great. So hey, um, outside of Snowflake, I noticed that you mentioned that you've been blogging um, for kind of a long time uh, at kentgraziano.com. Uh, we'll have that in the show notes. Um, and in that blog, you often mention martial arts. Uh, can you tell us how you got involved in martial arts and maybe what influence uh, that practice has on your uh, daily work? Well, the, the martial arts goes back to when I was a kid um, uh, and in reading about things, it was the, the time of Bruce Lee. Uh, judo had become an Olympic sport and yeah. I was a, I was a really small guy. I mean, I was, I was, uh, I'm still pretty small now, but when I was a kid, I was really small and the idea uh, that you know of physics and being able to use your opponent's weight against them, in particular with judo, uh, kind of yeah. got my attention. And then Bruce Lee, you know, the, the little Chinese guy who's faster than anybody has ever seen, who's 
taking down guys three times his size, uh, just fascinated me. And I managed to get into a Taekwondo class in the YMCA uh, when I was about 13 uh, for six weeks. And unfortunately, my parents couldn't afford it, so I didn't get to keep it up. But then I got went off to college and I, I grew up in upstate New York and went to Denver, to University of Denver. And I get there and it's like, oh, my God, everybody's like a giant here in my dorm. <laughs> The guys that were in my dorm were, were huge. And it was, you know, guys from Colorado and Wyoming. And they were just a lot of really big guys. And I got thinking about it. It's like, you know, I'm, it might be good for me to learn maybe just a little self-defense because you know how college guys get on the weekends. And um, I'm definitely the smallest one in the building, in the entire building. So uh, that summer I went back home and um, found a... Uh, a Taekwondo school that was very close to my dad's shop and just got, got engaged, had an awesome instructor who was a, uh, uh, a uh, Marine master sergeant who'd uh, done two tours of duty in Vietnam. He was, he was a little Italian guy like myself. Uh, wow. They grew up in the Bronx, New York. And, you know, he kind of instilled in me the passion for, for the martial arts and what I could do with it. And it turned out it was something that I was fairly good at. And so I just continued to pursue that. I had the, um, the luck to be again at the university of Denver. And when I went back after the summer, I found out that the instructor at the university of Denver was a, a master who had actually trained with the founder of Taekwondo in Korea. Wow. And so it was like, wow, could, could it get any better, right? And so I became basically his principal student and uh, been doing it now be 40 years this June that I've been training in uh, and teaching Taekwondo in particular. Wow. And uh, I've effectively inherited his system. So he's retired. Okay. And so I'm now the, the senior master for for his organization. And just found it was something that, uh, I guess, worked well in my brain. Uh, I do data modeling, right, which is all about patterns in the data. Well, one of the things that the martial arts have are patterns. In uh, Korean, they're called hyungs. In Japanese, they're called kata. And I am recognized as a pattern master. I am one of the few people that has learned all 24 patterns within the traditional Taekwondo system. Okay. And so I, you know, just gravitated to that. And it's a, to me, it's a form of moving meditation that also happens to teach a lot of self-defense principles in the execution. Yeah. Uh, Then over the years, I got involved in others. When I lived in Japan, I got to study Aikido and Judo from Aikido and Judo masters. And then eventually got involved in some Filipino martial arts that a friend of mine uh, had picked up. Um, and then combat Hapkido, and then also Tai Chi and Qigong. Um, yeah. So I've been doing all of these things for, for several decades now. And you know, the, like I said, the corollary there is you know, the, the, the mental patterns in the martial arts. Uh, that have a, a practical application in the self-defense world. And then the patterns in the data that I've been able to discern as a, as a data modeler over the years. And so there's definitely a, uh, a correlation there somewhere, I guess, in, in the way my brain works. Right? Yeah. Of course. And, 
and then the the discipline and focus that I learned in the martial arts and the I'll say the work ethic there of perseverance and indomitable spirit, which are two of the tenets of Taekwondo, have certainly carried over into into my work life and and how I approach what I do, whether it's um, speaking on stage or previously doing doing data models and developing systems for for my customers. Um, I apply that same level of integrity and perseverance to to getting the job done and, and doing the right thing and what needs to be done. Do, do you find that you're you're able to keep up with that practice while you're traveling? Is, is that a challenge for you? Uh, it, it's a it is a little bit of a challenge. Um, but what I found again, the, the, the great thing with the patterns and everything, the one of the uh, stories that comes out of Taekwondo is that the founder of Taekwondo worked out these patterns while he was in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Wow. So many of them can be done in a very small space. So I actually do practice them in my hotel room. If I've got a hotel room that has, it just needs a a little bit of space, but even when I can't do that, uh, my Qigong practice I can do because it's a still stance moving meditation. So I'm able to do that. All I need is basically around me front and back side to side and and yeah. i can do that and so i do, I do uh so it's, it's more of a it's a discipline challenge to actually you know find a time during the day which usually i have to do it do it in the morning when i get up uh, before i go yeah. off to my meetings or presentations so i do i do try to maintain that uh when i prior to all the travel i was doing snowflake the last couple of years a friend of mine runs a class at the local YMCA. And so for the yeah. last 10 years, since I moved here to, to Texas, I've been helping him with that class. And so being able to maintain by going in and continuing to teach, uh, primarily I, I work with the black belts and the senior instructors and help train yeah. them and help them learn what they need to learn. Um, so I've been able to, to keep it up and I still go back and forth to Colorado, um, you know, at least once a year, usually to do uh, promotion examinations for people testing for their black belt or higher levels of black belt. Um, so I, wow. I do actually have certificates sitting on my desk here that I need to sign for a test <laughs> I did about four months ago. So wow, I am that's incredible. To keep it up. Um, yeah, I never knew that about you. Uh, you've got a rich history there. And speaking of patterns. Um, I'm noticing a pattern in at least two major themes of your life of identifying and working with mentors, uh, kind of some of the best mentors you could. You talked about um, your your publishing experience and your technical editor for uh, Data Vault work and modeling. And then again, with your uh, martial arts, is that something you do uh, consciously or you just seem to find yourself around good people? Um yeah, I, I think I, I seem to find myself around good people. I'm certainly more conscious of it, I'll say, uh, as my career went on. But like I said, with uh, my Taekwondo being in Denver and finding out that the instructor there was a personal student of the founder, it's like, okay, well, I don't need to go look for another instructor. I, you know, yeah. I'm going to go with this guy, right? And, <laughs> uh, you know, obviously learned an awful lot from him over the years. And like I said, the uh, the first book and getting to, to meet and work with Bill Inman and Claudia Imhoff. I get that was the result of my taking a job with a particular boutique uh, consultancy in Denver. Uh, and yeah. I think it's more about the awareness. And that's one of the things that you learn in martial arts is to be self-aware and be aware of your surroundings. You know, that's one of the kind of primary tenets of self-defense 
um, to, to quote Mr. Miyagi, best defense, no be there, right? Okay. Well, how, how do you, you avoid a bad situation by being aware of the fact that there is a bad situation in your vicinity and, you know, try to avoid that and walk around it if it's, if it's something that you can avoid. But likewise, being aware of good situations, if you're being aware of your surroundings and being aware of the opportunities that are in front of you and your opportunity to work with someone. And uh, I often tell people that having had a world level grandmaster put a spin back kick an eighth of an inch from the bridge of your nose. Oh. Uh, it's, I find that I'm not intimidated by very many people. Really? Uh, because of that, right? I mean, you've had a guy who who had the the skill and the power to basically take you out in the blink of an eye. Yeah. Uh, and to have that someone like that as a mentor, one of the things they trained us in Taekwondo for demonstration purposes is if the master is using you basically as a demonstration dummy, the number one rule is don't flinch. Okay. So building up the, the mental capacity to realize that, well, I'll say in this case, there's an eminent danger and an eminent threat, but at the same time, having the trust in that person that they're really not going to hurt you so wow. that you can just stand still and be very calm. Uh, so with that, meeting people like Bill Inman, where I know folks have uh, often are intimidated by you know luminaries and executives in particular. I know the first time I worked with a couple of executives from Oracle, everybody was amazed that I would just go up to them and talk to them. It's like, well, why not? They're they're just human beings like me, right? And yeah. uh, that allowed me those opportunities to to become friends with these mentors, right? And to not be afraid to approach Bill and ask him a question, to talk to Claudia and ask her a question and advice on my career, uh, which I've done many, many times with with Claudia over the last uh, twenty years, and then. Yeah. Again, the opportunity with uh, Data Vault was Dan Lindstedt invented that, and he had done a set of seminars when he first released it in the early 2000s. And I saw an ad for the seminar, and you said, you know, how do you keep up, right? So I said, yeah. hey, you know, it turned out it was near where I worked. It was convenient. It was a lunch and learn. I was able to walk over to where he was doing it, sit there, have lunch, listen to him, because I, I recognized that what he was talking about kind of flew in the face of the traditional approach to data warehousing. So I wanted to see what it was all about. So it was just yeah. really being open to those opportunities um, and being willing uh, to, to question them and get more information and then, you know, ask for their help in understanding what it was they were doing and how they were doing it. So it really, you know, the, the two, like you said, the martial arts and my data career are, are very interrelated, especially from a, a mental aspect and my approach to, to those things. So wow. really, it's just being open to it, being aware uh, that they're there, and then not being afraid or intimidated to go ask somebody. Because as it turns out, most people like to tell you about what they've done. Yeah. If you ask somebody, to tell you how they did something, they will tell you, right? Okay. Um, and that's, uh, and so, and often people appreciate being asked. And if I find, especially with executives and uh, industry luminaries like Bill and Dan and Claudia, that they, they've done so much and they, they really 
like to tell people about that that are interested, right? They don't want to just tell people who are just kind of, you know, kissing up to them. You know, if, yeah. you're, if you're sincerely interested and you're willing to learn, and I found that is true of all great teachers. Yeah. It's, you know, they, they used to say, and this is a thing in the martial arts, when the, when the pupil is ready, the teacher will appear. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know where that came from. If it's a, if it's a Chinese proverb or what it was, but it was something they used to say, you know, when the te- when the pupil is ready, the teacher will appear. Cause there's no that sense. Really in, yeah. Cause if you're, there's no sense in having a teacher or a mentor, if your mind's not open and yep. uh, there's another one there, they talk about having your um, emptying your teacup. Yeah. If the teacup is full. Then a teacher can't give you anything new. Yeah. So you have to have the, the empty teacup so they can pour you new wisdom, pour new knowledge into your, into your teacup. And so, okay. you know, the combination of all of those things is just, you know, being aware, being open, being, being willing to learn from other people will, will bring you these opportunities. Yeah. Man, that's fascinating. Um, and keeping the theme of opportunities and open mind uh, going here, um, are there any big things you see looming on the horizon uh, in the future? What kind of things might be the next snowflake or the next big thing in this space? Well, I think, you know, we already touched on it a li- little bit is the, the data sharing and the data okay. economy. I think that's, uh, that's, that's a big thing that's actually, it's, it's starting to hit right now that yeah. uh, data has become so much more important in part because the technology is there for us to take advantage of it. It's always been important, but for companies to take advantage of it and organizations to take advantage of it, um, the, the that opportunity is huge. So that ability to you know, really maybe now data will truly be considered an asset. We've talked about it being an asset for a couple of decades. Yeah. Now it actually seems to be coming a true asset. Uh, the ability to share that data adds value to that asset. So that gives you the ability to even monetize. Uh, Or in the case of humanitarian efforts, like what's going on right now with the the virus to, to give it away, but it's still an asset and the value is there, right? I mean, it's, it's tangible what we can do, how we can impact society with access to this data is incredibly important right now as, you know, we've got parts of our economy have shut down because we're all, you know, sheltering in place effectively and to be able to get back to uh, a more normal way of living and doing business is going to be very important for, well, millions of people, the millions and millions of people who are on un- unemployment now, um, to be able to get them back to work, to support their families and support their communities. Very important. Um, on the technology side, in addition to that, you've got this uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and this concept that I've heard from uh, my friends at Data Robot called AutoML or automatic machine learning. Um, The technology advances are now starting to come with with access to all this data. You know, previously we've had to rely on data scientists and and people with PhDs to really do a lot with it. This concept of auto ML, there's certain patterns and certain algorithms that can be applied to the data that can be done via the machine and via machine learning. 
where you can take data and apply multiple algorithms and see what the results are. So it's a way of yeah. running those experiments, if you will, on the, on the data that you don't necessarily have to be a, uh, a, a PhD level statistician, data scientist to come up with it because the algorithms are now known. Yeah. And to be able to apply that to the data uh, in, an auto, in a more automated fashion to allow us to get even more value of the data. So I, I think there's a, you know, there's a, there's certainly a convergence coming there with the data economy, data as an asset, the ability to now share the data globally in a much more seamless manner to make all that data available. Because one of the things with machine learning is the more data you have, the bigger and better your data set is, the more significant the results are going to be coming out of that machine learning. Yeah. Like any basic statistical sample set, if you've got five things, okay, you can draw some conclusions from that. But they may be completely wrong conclusions. Yep. Where if you look at a data set of a thousand or a million or a billion, the yeah. statistical significance of that result set is going to be greater. Yeah. And so all of this kind of comes together to like, you know, what can we, what are the possibilities? What can we, what can we do when we can really harness this data, um, access it at high speed. So the cloud certainly plays in there and this availability of just an enormous amount of compute power at what we used to say commodity pricing, right? Uh, To be able to turn it on and off and use it, to, to solve specific problems. You, know, you put all that together in the uh, potential of what people can do with that data is just enormous. And you know, my hope, of course, is that it will be used for good, that people yeah. will uh, uh, find ways to you know, make, make this world a better place for us to live in, that we'll solve issues like COVID-19 and, and find cure find cures and vaccines faster for any number of diseases um, throughout the world. So in the healthcare space, for sure, but also in the economic areas, helping underdeveloped countries and underdeveloped societies, you know, how can we make, you know, make their lives better in the process yeah. by using data? I think, I think that is a great note uh, to kind of start wrapping things up on Kent. That's powerful stuff. Um, before we before we go, is there anything you'd like the audience to know? Any um, projects or products or media or anything you want to give visibility to while you're here? Well, I guess you know if people are are looking into this, there's uh, the uh, Cloud Analytics Academy that uh, Snowflake and a bunch of our partners put together. That is a a bunch of vendor truly vendor agnostic sessions to get people up to speed on the cloud, the possibilities of the cloud. There's some data science tracks. There's some analytics tracks. So anyone who's thinking they want to get into data and really start looking at the cloud, uh, look at cloudanalyticsacademy.com. That's a great place to start. It's a free resource. Uh, If, of course, you're looking into things like Snowflake with uh, uh, the pandemic going on. We've gone to a lot of virtual events. So I just did a virtual data for breakfast uh, last week. And so we're doing a lot more of those sorts of things. We've got virtual hands-on labs going on now. And then even our um, Snowflake Education Services team has gone to virtual for our fundamentals training and our advanced training is all available 
uh, in a virtual manner. Then even on the Snowflake site, we have um, Snowflake University, which is, again, a free resource, kind of introduction to Snowflake and all things Snowflake that people yeah. can go to and start trying to pursue a uh, what we call SnowPro certification. Uh, yeah. That we've uh, launched a Data Heroes program. So for our uh, community advocates who are really out there helping other people online, whether it's on Stack Overflow or uh, blog posts within our community. And I know we've got, you know, blog posts from quite a few of our partners and, and you guys are certainly out there doing a lot of writing yourselves about uh, how to effectively use Snowflake, which is just awesome. And then one resource that people don't really seem to know about as much is we Snowflake actually has a YouTube channel. Oh, really? Yeah, and I mean, and it goes back. I mean, there's some really interesting videos there from four or five years ago. There's a couple of interviews with our founders and how they kind of came up with the idea, but it's also all our customer testimonials. So whenever you see something on Twitter or LinkedIn with a video in it, those are really, they're all housed over on our, our YouTube channel. So there's, you can always go back there and find find all sorts of things uh, going back years and years from companies. And there's some, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of short, you know, less than five minute videos um, that tend to be the testimonials and some kind of feature overviews. And then there's some longer webinars and yeah. hour long things. And even things some of our sales engineers put together, some demos that they did uh, years and years ago uh, that are just, you know, great sources. So as, as people are, um, working out of their home offices here uh, under quarantine, uh, lots of opportunities for uh, education to yeah, know advance the knowledge. Yeah. And so if anyone in, the, uh, in our audience wanted to um, maybe consume more of your content or get a hold of you, what are some good ways to do that? Well, uh, we have a blog on Snowflake, so snowflake.com slash blog. Uh, but probably the easiest way to find out what's going there is follow me on Twitter. It's just Kent Graziano right. on Twitter because uh, that is uh, part of my job as the evangelist is I'm, I'm, I'm tweeting, I'll say, pretty much constantly. I, uh, okay. I send out multiple tweets a day. Uh, as we publish new blogs, I will, uh, I'll tweet those. I also post them on LinkedIn. So you're really kind of depending on your your preference for consumption of social media you know LinkedIn and uh, and Twitter you can follow me on both of those um, obviously my my uh, my personal blog kentgraziano.com, which has not been real active because I've been so busy with snowflake uh, I, I don't do a lot of uh, a lot of unique content on there recently I've done a little bit but uh, most of what I do shows up on the uh, on the snowflake blog site. Um, and then uh, SlideShare, for people who don't know about that, uh, uh, LinkedIn actually owns it now, but it's slideshare.net or slideshare.com. I can't remember which sometimes. And sure. there's not only am I out there and a lot of presentations that I've given over the last five or six years are out there for you to, to view. There's all kinds of people out there in, in various industries sharing their content there. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Kent. That's great. We'll add all that to our show notes. So uh, if you didn't catch it, you can you can find that in the episode description. And Kent, I really want to uh, thank you for taking time to uh, join us today and talk a little bit about your your background in Snowflake. You're welcome. Uh, thank, thanks for having me. It's, it's always fun to talk to a fellow data geek about yeah. uh, what we're doing here in the in the data world. 
Absolutely. And I also want to thank our audience for listening and uh, encourage you to please stay tuned for more Data Rebel content. Uh, as always, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Data Rebels on Tap. Be sure to subscribe for weekly new episodes and visit HashMap's Medium blog for new data and cloud technology perspectives. If you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast, please visit the Data Rebels on Tap page on HashMap's website. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in.